Welcome to the Lead Wasps podcast, the only podcast in the world to specifically host infantry guests from all over the globe. Today your guest is retired Staff Sergeant Jay Amra. Jay served over 10 years with the US Marine Corps and was based in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. That's where he joined the boys from 1st Battalion 6th Marines before quickly deploying to Marja, Afghanistan. He spent a significant amount of time with Weapons Platoon and he talks about the tactical environment as a gunner, he gives great advice about when not to take a leak and he also talks on his time at Quantico instructing fresh-faced lieutenants. Jay is now working as a fireman and continues to serve his community and from our time talking it's clear that he's just an awesome dude. So without further ado, the Lead Wasps podcast episode 47 is live. At the start of the show, what we always do is we, we uh, get a little story from, from our guest, Jay, uh, and, <clears throat> and that's going to be them telling a story about something that they'd done on deployment or during their time while they were serving, that at the time, they didn't want anyone to know about, but now that they're out and uh, a little time has passed, they're more than happy to admit to. So uh, let the boys hear your little story. All right. Um, I thought about this a lot earlier when I was walking my dog because I saw it on the agenda. And, uh, you know, I was jogging through some, some ideas in my mind, but, uh, a lot of stuff you want to keep buried, you know, you're going to take it to the grave with you. <laughs> but, uh, one thing that came up to me was my first firefight I ever got into. And that was in, uh, 2010, right. When we had gotten into country, I think in the January timeframe. And we had gone in to make the push into Marja, but we had, we had been, um, setting it leatherneck for quite some time. And we heard rumors that we were getting sent out to kind of like test our combat abilities prior to going in to do the push. So we went to this little fire base called uh, Fiddler's Green. And 311 had set it up the year before uh, to use, you know, sporadically to go out there, conduct fire missions, come back. So we flew out there. There was really no rhyme or reason to us being out there. It was just, you know, go out there, get into a tick a couple of times, then come on back. So I think we ran like, I think we were out there for 72 hours. And it was a rundown place, you know, and the first uh, mission we went out on, we had went out on this patrol and we had heard rumors from the Taliban in the area that, you know, they had a white truck with an AA gun on the back, um, uh, 12.7 millimeter, I think, uh, the quad barrels and everything like that. So we go out and as we're patrolling out, we start to hear on the icon, we hear chatter and they're saying, hey, we got some Marines coming our way, so on and so forth, bring down the big gun. So we see this white van coming down and it's shuttling guys back and forth. And then we get a glimpse of this AA gun coming down. So in my mind, you know, this is my first combat experience. I'm like, shit is about to hit the fan, bro. <laughs> so I look to my right and I see this guy in like a blue man dress, a light blue man dress, and he's glassing us. So I reported up to my seniors on the radio and we keep pushing. Really nothing happens for like the next five, 10 minutes. And the first thought in my mind, I was like, man, I got to piss. Like, I hope nothing happens before I got to take this piss. Well, as soon as I had that thought, bro, we start taking contact. And we start getting hammered with a PKM and an AK-47 was in one building. And then across the way, they had a couple more shooters. I think they had AKs. But everybody else gets down. And my dumb ass, I'm standing there, like, looking around. I'm kind of like, what's, what's going on? You know, this doesn't sound quite like the rifle range. <laughs> uh, but I hear my, my squad leader, he yells over. He's like, Amber, get the fuck down. We're taking contact. So I immediately hit the deck. I'm like, shit, we're in it now, you know. And my mind is telling me, find cover, get out in the middle of the field. But my body's telling me, you're taking a piss right now. 
<laughs> so as my body's telling me this, I'm sitting there telling myself, I'm like, you are not going to pitch yourself your first firefight. There's no way people are going to see you get up, sprint, and you're just covered in, in urine. So I roll over onto one side there. I mean, there's rounds impacting, you know, within four to five feet of me. And I roll over onto one side and I pull it out and I start taking a leak right there. I piss in a puddle. <laughs> and that was my, that was my main objective just to get that out. And I see everybody else sprinting for cover. I zip myself back up. I roll back over about three or four more times to get away from it. I look down, I got a little bit of piss on my pants. So I throw some dirt on it. I'm like, fuck. All right. I stand up. And as soon as I stand up, I run to cover. I get set, you know, we go on about doing our business and we take care of the the couple of threats that had presented themselves. But yeah, man, that was my first firefight. And I was like, that's the only thing on my head. It wasn't don't get shot. It's just don't piss yourself in this firefight, bro. <laughs> oh man, that is an awesome one. Hey, listen, that that just shows it. Uh you when you're in these uh in these environments with the guys around you, you would rather get shot then piss your pants and get have to live with that with the rest of your life. Oh, having, the boy, having the boys have that story to tell at weddings and funerals and all sorts for uh, for time uh, immortal. So well done for, for not pissing your pants, Jay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For showing the initiative to, to whip your cock out in the middle of a fucking killing area and, and uh, spring a leak. So good job. <laughs> that's a, good, that's a good, good opener as well. It's probably one of the better ones we've had. Uh, but if you don't mind, buddy, give a, a, yourself a little introduction and uh, tell the guests a little bit about who you are, uh, just a, a brief overview of who you are and what your military career looked like. Yeah, man. So um, as we started out, my name is Jay Amra. Uh, I was born in Northern Virginia, born and raised there. Um, and I was, you know, my father was my biggest role or my, excuse me, my grandfather was my biggest role model coming up. Uh, he was a Vietnam, Korea guy. So very raised by the book in that aspect. It was a, a hard work in life. Um, I spent a lot of time around him. We had a family farm. I worked on the family farm while I attended high school, uh, played football in high school, you know, went on to graduate from high school in 2005. After that, um, I worked in the uh, private sector for a little bit, doing government contracts for a security company. And it was more like, cabling for um like computer security and stuff like that uh, a lot of office time nine to five and that was kind of like the the period when one day I took a look around the office and I was like I do not want to um you know this isn't something I want to do for the rest of my life so that's really when my grandfather took that step up and and uh you know he started bringing forth that military aspect and hey man maybe you want to consider this as one of your options so I looked into it, talked to the recruiter for a little bit. Um, and then in 2008, I went down to the recruiting office, uh, got the paperwork going. Um, I was never even supposed to be an infantry guy. I was supposed to be aviation, but we can get to that story later on. Um, but yeah, signed up in 2008, uh, shipped off to boot camp, graduated, uh, boot camp in October timeframe, went to SOI, got out of SOI, uh, December and reported to 1st Battalion, 6th Marines. Um, first, so when I got there, I was uh, PFC team leader um, for the machine gun section in Alpha Company. We ended up pushing out on our first pump uh, later that year, 2009, for the push through Marja. Uh, we returned from that, and then we ended up pushing out to Sangin and Kajaki in 2011 to make that push up to the dam. Uh, while we were there, I in country, I re-enlisted, signed the Op 4 contract. 
Um, and I volunteered to stay with 1-6 because there was a rumor we'd be making another pump back to Afghanistan. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Stuck around 1-6 until about 2015. I uh, did that 22nd MU deployment with them. And then I shipped up to Quantico for about two years. And uh, I was an instructor at the basic school um, and got out and ironically enough, got out September 11th of 2017. Awesome. Thank, uh, thanks for that in- introduction. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. <clears throat> and uh, Virginia, what the hell was it like growing up in Virginia and uh, in the, the mid 2000s or 90s, 90s and early 2000s? It was a lot different back then, man. Um, you know, like I said, we had a farm up there. So the whole road was nothing but different farms. Um, it was a quiet place. Uh, you know, it was the type of place where you got up, you worked from sun up till sundown, and at night you just drank as much beer as you could until you fell asleep. <laughs> um, still, like, it still kind of had that southern vibe to it. You know, you would see the occasional Confederate flag flying in the yard and everything, but it wasn't too brazen like it is down south. Um, but yeah, man, just a pretty much run of the mill life. You know, it was just quiet, pretty hard working neighborhood. You got, whenever you had the weekends off, you had some time at night, you got time to play and, and let some of the steam out. But, so de- definitely pretty more rural than uh, than city living. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it, we were only about forty five minutes outside of Washington D.C. So it's crazy the uh, how much it can change in that short time period. Just driving down the highway once you get to all the farmland and everything. That's awesome. And um, and how how close to the the family was your grandfather? Then was he living in the same area as you were growing up, or? Uh, did he come from out elsewhere to come visit you from time to time? No, he lived in that area. So um, when he joined the army, he moved up to uh, he after he got back from Vietnam. He lived um, in Quantico, Virginia, for a while. He was an instructor at Quantico as well. Um, and they bought a place in Woodbridge, Virginia, and then eventually he bought a farm in Manassas, Virginia. And we we lived right down the street. I mean. Uh, I think it was maybe five or 10 minute drive, but I spent the majority of my childhood at his farm, just kind of helping him out and working. Uh, yeah. And, uh, did, when you were growing up, did you ever have a, an understanding of his service and, and his, uh, uh, with him being a Vietnam vet and did you understood what it meant as a, as a kid? I didn't understand what it meant as a kid. You know, those Vietnam guys and the Korean guys are often shrouded in mystery just because they didn't talk about, stuff too much you know it's not it's not as open as it is now so I knew him as an asshole like I, I I'll never forget one time my brother and I we went down and we got our ears pierced because that was the thing to do you know back <laughs> I had mine done as well <laughs> yeah and man that set him off bro and like I remember we were going to this place called Mike's Diner one night and he used to have this old uh early 80s Cadillac and he was driving us down there and he made sure it was just me, me and my brother in the car with him and when we drove down there, man, he was like, he was calling us faggots. He was saying, you know, you shouldn't have your ears pierced unless you sailed all the seas and, and all this like sort of Navy criteria for having your ears pierced. So when we were younger, we just kind of thought he was an asshole. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, I guess my teen years when I started considering or looking more into the military that I kind of understood, you know, how much he was impacted by his service overseas and stuff like that. And that's when it kind of came you know, maybe he's not just a dick. There's just depths <laughs> to him I'm aware of. You know what I mean? Yeah. What did uh, what you what did he serve in? Uh, he was in the army, but 
<clears throat> cool enough, he was an honorary Marine. He was made an honorary Marine while he was in Vietnam. How the hell does that come around? That sounds like something that's, you know, I've never heard of that before. Bro, neither have I. I didn't, um, I didn't know about it until a couple years back, but he has a plaque on his wall and he was EOD in the army, but he worked. I mean, a lot of the missions that he ran in Vietnam were, were very closely tied to the Marine Corps, if not directly for the Marine Corps. Mm. And he has a plaque on his wall with a gunner's um, symbol on it. And it says honorary Marine gunner presented to chief warrant officer three William Allman on this date. Damn, that's pretty cool. And you've yeah, never heard so of any- been, <laughs> you've never heard of anyone else that's, that's, that's uh, had that presented to them. No, I tried to look it up and, you know, it was, it's still kind of hard for me to believe that he had that plaque because the <laughs> Marine Corps is, is such a, an organization that you have to earn that title, you know, going through the whole process. That's what I was coming to. He must have made such an impression that those boys were just like, listen, he's one of us that give him, give yeah. him that, uh, give him that title. <clears throat> and, uh, that he, I, I'm going, I'm guessing that he never talked to you when you were younger, but after your service with, with the Marines, did he ever talk to you about his service? He did, um, very sporadic and not a lot of detail though. You know, it was more often than not, it is like it is now when you've got to drink in a little bit and you'll start, you know, we used to sit down and have a couple beers together after work or something like that. And the story would start to come out and he would kind of pull it back pretty quick. Um, but after he passed away, uh, I got some of his military documentation and stuff like that. So I was able to find out a little bit of it, but it's still very cloudy. I'm not, you know, I'm not too sure outside of the fact that he was EOD, what kind of went down over there yeah. or, or things that he did. Yeah. Vietnam's fucking, is, it's a rough deal. Like it's, um, it certainly didn't have the scrutiny that, that, you know, trips go, deploying to Afghanistan had, had uh, I've been half to, having had 10 years of, of previous, you know, overwatch from the, the big wigs saying, hey, you can't do this. You can't do that. Back in Vietnam, I'm pretty sure they were just doing whatever the fuck they wanted, going on rogue patrols and, you know, you know, fucking capturing people left and certain and doing all sorts anyway, but we'll probably not dig into that. Um, it's, it's a different era anyway, that's that's for sure. And and you mentioned he was your role, uh, a role model to you. So what what was it that eventually kind of broke the camel's back that he, he uh, I guess, uh, got you to, to join the military or at least go down to the recruiter's office? Um, you know, I was talking about, um, when in my teen years, you know, it kind of made that transition where I could see that there was a little bit more to him than, than what, what, what I took at face value. And as I started to work with him more, um, on the farm, I sort started to kind of understand his methods and his ideals a little bit more and, and really saw where his heart, um, lied, you know, with everything that was going on. So, you know, he was an example for my family. He was really the only male in my family. Most of the other ones had either died off or, you know, left besides my brother and I. Um, so, you know, he was kind of the rock as far as the family goes. And then growing up, you know, he, he preached hard work all the time, uh, dedication. You know, he stood by his word. So a lot of those things that we hear about um, and like what a male should be, he, he presented to me directly. And then just that kind of talk, you know, I guess the, the envy of seeing the military medals and seeing the discipline and, and stuff like that attached to all these things that he encompassed as a man, it was, it was kind of just like, you know, it was a path that had been set well before I had a plan for it. So, 
Um, we got to, our, we used to sit down in the barn and listen to country music. And that's when this, the talks would start to happen. Hey, you should, you know, kind of look into the military because this, it, it'll open up these doors for you later on in life. And then, you know, eventually all those things kind of came back when I told you I was working that corporate job. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, yeah, and there's a lot more there that, that grandpa was right about that I haven't seen yet. So, <laughs> I, I, and it's sometimes a bit of a struggle to admit that your 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 parents or your family was right. Um, I remember something that my my mom told me when I was younger, and uh, just recently when I was talking to her, I was like, I says, "Remember you were telling me about this and that." I says, "Well, that's it. You you were right." But at the time, I was like, I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to hear about it. You know, it's like, who the hell? Do, she doesn't know anything. I, I like I I know every I know everything as this like sixteen year old kid. My mom's obviously you know got all the experience in the world and then later on and on a 10 15 years down the line i come back to to think about it and like listen you were right back back in the day i was a bit of a uh a, a numbskull back then but um yeah family are so influential and uh i'm i'm got i'm I, I guess i'm glad to to say that he steered you towards the military and you actually made that decision because a lot of people just get stuck in the monotony of that that everyday life don't they and, and um can i get hung up on the fact that oh i wish i'd done this i wish i'd done that and quite quite honestly the steps to actually get it done are easy you just have to go and do it so going to the recruiter you mentioned that you're meant to go uh to some sort of aviation branch what what happened there man i went into it um i talked to the recruiter you know and he was asking me what i wanted to be and there was that when i was younger i wanted to be a firefighter <laughs> so i saw crash fire rescue specialist um, which I guess you just like sit on the runway and wait for a plane to crash or something. I have no idea, but, uh, I signed up for it and my contract to this day, it still says B8 mechanical. Um, so I called him, you know, we had gotten out of boot camp and we were going down to SOI and SOI is where you make that split. You're either going to MCT, which is Marine combat training, or you're going to SOI, which is school of infantry where all the grunts go. So I called my, uh, my recruiter uh gunny on the phone i was like hey gunny i think i made a mistake man like i want to go infantry i don't want to be a pogue anymore like how can we fix this right now? <laughs> and he's like dude just step in the other line he's like don't say anything to anybody just go to the soi line and i was nervous you know i'm nervous as hell because i'm brand new to this thing so i was like all right roger that so i had on my my alphas you know the green pickle suit and i'm standing in the mos or the uh, mct line I just took one step to the left and I was in the SOI line. Nobody ever said a word to me, bro. <laughs> I made it through for 10 years on an 0331 contract without it ever being brought up again. <laughs> that is insane. And where was that? Just at basic training? That was at SOI, right? It was, I mean, next door to Camp Lejeune where I was stationed at for the next eight years. But right when I got in, he he just told me, man, take that step to the left and see what happens. And I did. And it all played out. Probably one of the biggest steps you've ever taken in your life. Yeah, man. I mean, it was a six-inch step, but it changed so much in my life. It, it's ridiculous. What do you think your career would have looked like if you stayed in that first line? I would have worked with a whole lot more women, man. That would have been the one plus. <laughs> Other than that, I would have hated it. <laughs> yeah, you call them pogs, but... Uh, personnel other than grunts and uh, we call them ramps rear echelon motherfuckers <laughs> that's way better than the pogue man <laughs> <laughs> oh man they hate it as well they hate it when they hear it they hate it hey 
Listen, uh, now I'm out. I, I don't actually believe that, but at the time, it was uh, you couldn't have told me. You couldn't have told me otherwise. Um, but <clears throat> I guess rocking up at boot camp and then going to SOI. How, how was that whole experience for you? Was it what you expected, or was it uh, were you kind of like a fish out of water when you were, when you were there? No, it was. I mean, it was kind of what I expected. I had some hiccups while I was there. Um, but, like, I grew up playing football. You know, everything about my childhood was extremely physical. Um, a little embarrassing when I got there because for my stature, I'm, I've always been a, a thicker guy. I think when I got to boot camp, I was, like, 220. And if you're if you're overweight when you get to boot camp, they mark you. So they spray paint two white lines on your all your PT shirts to, to tell everybody you're a fat body. <laughs> I had the two white lines, you know, I'd pass the PFT and everything, but um, I had those two white lines marking me with the rest of the guys that were overweight. So they gave us extra PT. Um, and it was, it was, you know, basic experience during that time. I, I was with two, two different platoons in boot camp. Uh, my first platoon wasn't too crazy. Um, you know, just a lot of screaming, a lot of PT, but there wasn't really any extracurricular like messing around or, or too much craziness but I ended up breaking my uh ring finger on my right hand um during the first like pugil stick um match we had I took my glove off I had an open fracture so obviously I had to go to the hospital and they held me in uh, uh waiting I can't remember what the platoon is but they held me in that waiting platoon for about a month until it healed up they sent me out to my new platoon which was 2085 um and that's where things got, you know, a little froggy uh, as far as like kind of changing my aspect. Cause I thought it was just going to be getting screened at and everything, but man, we used to have this drill instructor. He was our kill hat. I don't want to put his name out there uh, just because some of the things he did were frowned upon, <laughs> but uh, you know, we'd be sleeping at night and he would be crawling underneath the rack. He'd be dressed up as a recruit and you'd be sleeping and he'd reach over the rack and hit you with his knife hand in the throat. So you'd wake up choking <laughs> and fall back asleep. I mean, we would go out and do night land navigation and he would pop up out of a bush and just punch you in the chest as hard as he could and then disappear into the night, you know, crazy <laughs> shit like that. So that was kind of unorthodox outside of the box, you know, that I didn't expect. Um, but it made for good stories later on. And then, uh, after that, yeah, man, SOI was just basic weapons. You know, I thought, the one thing about SOI is when you graduate boot camp, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, is they're like, you're a Marine now, you're in the Brotherhood. So you kind of expect when you go to that next step to get treated a little bit better, but completely the same shit as boot camp. You know, you just get shit on for three months and you get fucked with. Um, so that's really the only thing that was was kind of shocking about SOI. But other than that, yeah, man, just basic, basic infantry skills. Yeah, there's there's a few points there I, I kind of picked out. The the first is how the hell do do the uh, do the Marine Corps do that uh, overweight thing now with with the woke culture? Surely there's no way they can get away with spraying the fat guys with with white paint these days. No, I I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine they would still call them out like that. It was embarrassing as shit, bro. So I know you can't hurt feelings like that anymore. <laughs> and uh yeah you were saying that you, your uh, drill instructor was doing stuff that was frowned upon so I actually throughout talking to people and doing it i like be, having an interest i know that the uh the drill instructors they're not allowed to uh, swear at you is that right they're not allowed to curse at you now they're not allowed to i don't think so maybe someone maybe okay. someone listening could tell me but 
I'm guessing yeah, if they're fucking knife handing you the throat, they're they're swearing at you as well. I don't think that I think they just formulated complete sentences out of cuss words when I was in. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember them saying too much besides like fuck and, and all sorts of other stuff. That's it. Every second word is fuck. And and at the oh, end of it, you're a dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what what unit did you end up rocking up at? <clears throat> uh when I first hit the fleet. Yeah. I went straight to one six. And we um, first Marines, I was with Alpha Company and then Weapons Platoon. And what, what what were they up to at the time when you when you joined them? Uh, so they had just returned from their deployment from Garmshire, Afghanistan, um, which, if I recall, it wasn't a very kinetic deployment. Uh, but a lot of those guys who went to Garmshire had also been through like the push in Fallujah. They were involved in Ramadi. Um, so right when I got to that unit, a lot of like excellent leadership, a lot of combat experience. Um, but they were really just kind of winding down from that Garmser deployment um, and getting, you know, set up again to start their work up to push, make that Marja deployment the, the following, I guess, the following year. Yeah. I spoke to a dude, uh, Jared Pruitt. He was, uh, he's one six as well. And he, uh, he was part of, uh, he was involved with the Ramadi and then that, that uh, Garmser uh, uh, deployment, the one that you're talking about there. Pretty sure he got out straight away afterwards, but, you know, I can't really remember. But if, uh, if guys are listening, he runs the uh, the one six uh, Facebook uh, no not Facebook Instagram page. Uh, yeah. Death Walkers, I think it's Death Death Walkers Walkers Inc or something like that, or like the one six. Uh... Yeah, anyway, he's got like fucking the 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 one six page. It's like six thousand, seven thousand fucking followers or whatever. And oh, yeah. uh, he he was telling oh, some he was telling some cool stories from from those deployments. So those were the type of guys that were there and. At, at the time and they were you know almost everyone combat combat veteran yeah a, a bunch of my senior guys um you know marco grosso uh chad wilson uh, a bunch of those guys noah ream they were all veterans of that um that garmshire deployment yeah he was uh he was lucky you know we were talking about it and and working where he was you know he bumped into brits every now and again and uh I was just wondering when you de- when you eventually did deploy, did you get any, any interaction with, the, with with British soldiers? Because obviously you're in Hellman and it's a, a, a British province, British controlled um, province. So the first deployment, I didn't really have any um, no actual combat experience. You know, we ran into them on the major bases um, on Leatherneck. We swapped camis with each other. Uh, I still got a, a set of the pants in the in the bedroom there that I wear every once in a while from the Brits. Um, but in, in my, on my second deployment in Sangin, um, I guess they had a pretty heavy presence there before we made the, the uh, push up there. But the unit before us, um, 3-8, I think. I can't remember the unit, man. My, my mind's failing me right now. But the Brits had a base there. Um, and in that base, I remember they had a memorial um, for the guys that, had, you know, unfortunately lost as a result of combat. And it was – you know, still there. Uh, we all tried to take care of it as much as we could, you know, show the respect, but there wasn't too much interaction as far as um, working together besides, you know, either changing over a base or seeing each other on the major yeah. bases. That's interesting. Um, and so just going back to when you rock up at 1-6 uh, <clears throat> and the guys have just come back from uh, from Afghan, what's the, what's the build up then for 
redeploying back 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 to Afghanistan. Were you straight away involved <laughs> in, in all that, or or were you on something else? Uh, what was that last part? I didn't hear you. Were you were you straight away as, as soon as you got there involved in that pre-deployment uh, build-up uh, to to get back to Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, it almost, you know, we got there in December of 2008, and I think we ended up pushing out to Afghanistan, um, I want to say December of 2009. Um, but, yeah, during that time, so the first couple months we were there, you know, they were kind of winding down. It was uh, just time to, to readjust the life in the States. And, you know, we would do classes every once in a while. You know, you have PT every morning. But the field ops would start to work up. <clears throat> we go to the field for, you know, uh, maybe a week here or there. And then the field ops would grow and we'd start doing larger operations, platoon level operations and in two week long field ops. Um, and then we went to train on some army bases like Fort AP Hill, um, you know, Fort Pickett. Um, those were usually a month long training operation. And it was just to, to get you um, adjusted to different climates, different environments. And then, eventually you would go out and do that CACS rotation in, in the Mojave Desert and you would do uh, 30 to 45 days out there. And that was kind of the final, you know, go ahead from the higher ups to say, hey, this unit's good to push out, um, you know, to the sandbox or, or not good to go. So then after that, you come home two weeks, three weeks on Libo and then, you know, see you in eight months or nine months, however long it is. <laughs> how, was, how was the pre-deployment training in terms of the, the guys that you had in your, your platoon? Um, was there a mixed bag of experience there? And in general, um, what was their uh, thought process about going back to Afghanistan? Were they pumped up for it or were they kind of, oh, fuck? I mean, you, you know, you have your, your handful of dick bags in any group of people, you know. Um, but for the most part, I had a good crew. They were an extremely aggressive bunch you know they were as far as like getting that gun to the fight and getting your gun up and, and making sure marine machine gunners are involved um i mean those dudes were top tier uh we used to have like <clears throat> my senior guys would organize you know like um we would go to bravo company or charlie company and we would just have section uh ground fight matches where we would just beat the shit out of each other to increase that toughness for <laughs> you know until the last man was standing from whatever section would win the fight that day um but no they were they were a pretty a pretty significant driving force they were all excited um to get back overseas and, and do another rotation you know um and they they constantly drove home that training that you needed as, as far as especially for like a new guy like me you know i was i was a team leader right when i hit the fleet with no experience so the other guys that made that same um, that same move into that team leader role, you know, they were right there on top of it as far as like what you need to do in your team leader role, you know, kind of how you how you deconflict anything from that infantry team leader, the 11 team leader and your guy and just make sure it's a smooth process. But I couldn't have asked for a better group of guys. Was that, uh, was that quite a tough learning curve going from uh, SOI into into that team leader role because you, you've obviously got a little bit of responsibility there uh, and obviously you're working a, a gun section so it might not be as simple as just doing some basic infantry tactics where you're just you're just a mule you've actually got a bit, a bit of responsibility and you need some technical acumen there yeah um yeah for sure because you know they don't really teach you you split up about halfway through an soi 
when you pick your MOS. So you have to take the test. And then once you take that test, they say, yeah, you can be a machine gunner or you're going to be a mortarman or, or an assaultman uh, at the time, an assaultman. But you really don't, it's all like schoolhouse bullshit that you learn. You know, you don't learn how to be a team leader in the field or you don't learn how to be a team leader in combat. And the biggest thing is they don't show you how to be a team leader in charge of your peer. I think that's one of the biggest things in the military that um, is not really focused on is that peer leadership because the guy that I was in charge of when I got to the fleet, I had the same amount of experience as he did. We both went through boot camp together. We both went through SOI together, but now I'm having to tell this guy what to do, you know? Um, So it was definitely a tough learning curve and, and you compound those problems with not having any sort of, you know, tactical leadership or not knowing what the battlefield is going to look like or how you're going to act on the battlefield. It was definitely a learning curve. Um, but like I said, those dudes that I had, luckily they were there to kind of set me up for success, if you will, with regard yeah. to that. That's good. We kind of do it different. Um, and uh, the, uh, the the regular arm is more, uh, I would say more in line with the way that you guys have got your promotion set. Whereas uh, for us over here in the UK, <clears throat> You'll come out of private. Uh, you'll come out of basic training as a private, and you will not promote no matter no matter how you know no matter where you end up. You might end up in a guns platoon, uh, guns platoon or mortars or wherever, but you will not promote until you go externally from your unit and do a, a promotional course. And that first one for an infantry guy is about six weeks, um, and they 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 teach you all those things you were just talking about there about how to lead your peers and kind of make that a little bit of a separation. And it's it's all very cliche, like when when you're know having gone back and as, and as an instructor it's very cliche about talking about separate yourself from the guys but it's uh it's definitely something that is is a, a value uh add to those guys on the course because that is something that it, it, you think about going through it you're like oh how, how the hell do it you know it's, it's that imposter syndrome almost like how the hell do i, I deserve to be here in, instead of this guy uh where he's got you know he's been in three years longer than me but and but now I'm on this course and I'm going to go back to unit and be in charge of him. But uh, I guess it's just, it's just the way the fucking, the machine works. Guys get, get, get ahead. Sometimes guys, you know, lose out sometimes. And, you know, um, you know, it's definitely something that is, is, uh, you know, a learned experience about how to lead your mates, but it's, it's definitely something that you just uh, also observe. It's like you, you learn through observation. You, you see the good guys in your platoon. And you just say, Oh, do what he's doing because it seems to be working pretty well um so there's kind of a, a mixed bag of observational learning just in unit and and that that comes with experience but then there also is a, an actual taught educated piece where guys go away and do this course and then they come back and they have the the tools to i guess to to lead their their peers which is uh maybe what you're talking about there um yeah but so and it's actually quite useful you know going going away from unit gets you out of the house and 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 comes you can come back kind of refreshed and you know with a, a with a fresh mindset about you know your new role so to speak um so i think that's also quite good um so you've went through all that pre-deployment training and then how how were you feeling about your uh actually getting on the plane and deploying to afghanistan obviously at this time it's 2010 is that right uh i think we got there in december of 2009 we didn't actually make the push until about two months later right so yeah, in terms of in terms of your thought process, what you're expecting, there's obviously been near enough ten years of stuff going on in Afghanistan, and you must have been aware of you know a lot of that by the time you were on that plane. What were you thinking about when you when you got there, about when you were going there? 
Uh, when I was when I was going there, it was um, it was definitely intimidating. <clears throat> I don't remember. I don't know if you remember like the hype surrounding the invasion of Marja, as they call it, or anything like that. But um, man, the media spun that thing up, and they made it seem like we were going into the next Fallujah, you know. So it was just like they constantly talked about no Americans have stepped foot here ever, you know. No outside forces have stepped foot here. Um, there was the whole hype around like you know, fortified Taliban fighting positions and how they're organizing this massive group of fighters to come down here. And they're all, you know, for, for lack of a better term, they're not the boots. They're like the, the seasoned guys, you know, that have been doing this since however long ago. Um, so going into it, it was definitely intimidating, uh, you know, going on my first deployment as a, as a junior team leader and hearing all this stuff and, and you really don't know what to believe and what not to believe. So you choose to believe it all and err on the side of caution. It's like you're going into the worst thing you could possibly imagine. So it was nerve wracking as shit, man. Um, you know, it, it was one of those deployments where, I mean, both of them were, it was one of those deployments though, where you, when you went on pre-deployment leave, you partied like you were not going to be coming home ever again, just because <laughs> of the bullshit that everybody was talking. Um, but you know, that, that changed significantly once we got into country, you know, we started working with the ANA and kind of getting acclimated to the environment and stuff like that. Um, granted, it was still a, a bad deployment. We lost a lot of guys and pretty significant combat, but um, yeah, it wasn't the hell that the media had portrayed it to be and, and all sorts of that. I don't want to take anything away from it, but it was pretty hyped up going into it. Yeah. You, you were on the, so you deployed into the winter, uh, I guess, you know, we have deployments split up into summer and winter deployments. So you were on the, the deployment. I was in the summer before you. So 2009, I was in the summer there. And then you went on to the, you deployed in the winter. So after me, and then 2009, that summer was uh, especially, well, I don't know if it, what it was for, for US forces, but for British forces and, and in Hellman's specifically, that summer of 2009 was the height of the whole Afghan conflict. So it had been, ramping up for the past the two years previous and then 2009 we had uh, a huge operation called uh, uh panchai palang which is translated to panther's claw um and it ended up being i think it was in total six weeks but we, you know my my unit took part and i think maybe for i don't know maybe the first three weeks of it <clears throat> something like that and then uh, kind of left it to ground holding troops to take over but that was a uh, that whole time period of of uh the summer of 09 for british troops was was definitely the height of it and crazy crazy scraps all over the ao and yeah like you mentioned lost a lot of guys um from a, a whole bunch of units and funnily well, maybe not funnily enough but uh oddly enough in some of the some of the the areas you've already mentioned previously so kajaki sang and marja all these places as as where there's you know, British troops were, were scrapping heavily in that, that 09 uh, time period. Uh, so going into that, going into that uh, winter of 2010, obviously it kind of dies down a little bit, but um, what we, what I was uh, especially expecting was it for to, to get worse the year after. And 2010 was still tasty, but it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as 2009. And then the year, the year after that kind of died off and, and eventually it, it kind of, died off until we we all pulled out but that that uh that time for you uh you mentioned you lost a lot of guys what what was the mechanism for that was it you know kind of solely ids or was it uh 
a mixture of that and you know gunshot wounds or <clears throat> uh it was kind of a mixture man to be honest um we had a lot of our vics obviously got hit by these um because those guys were laying some big time you know 150 200 pounders in the road um we lost a couple guys to some uh, directional charges that had placed in like doorways and stuff. Um, but I think, you know, a pretty good majority of what we took as far as casualties were from um, small arms fire. Um, they had a lot of well-trained snipers over there. Um, they were not afraid to bring down their medium guns um, and use those PKMs. You know, they had the, the dishkas every once in a while, they would bring them to the fight. But yeah, a lot of them were just in those, day-to-day ticks we would get into with you know eight to 15 fighters or whatever it might have been and and you know they were just we would every every once in a while they get a couple lucky shots off and hit some of the boys and and uh take them but i think it was split 50 50 you know ieds to gunshots probably yeah the the uh, the ied threat for us on that 2009 uh tour it was it was there um you know a couple of guys got hit but um it wasn't something that, you know, it was definitely something that we had in the forefront of our mind, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't, um, I guess, the main focus. In my second mm-hmm. deployment, IEDs were just the main focus, point blank, um, just because they'd ramped them up so much. Uh, but in, in that summer of 2009, they, they almost weren't the main focus because the contacts and the ticks were so bad. Uh, what what did uh, what did some of those, those uh, uh, I guess enemy contacts look like for you so uh, in, in terms of engagements and distances and you know i guess tactics what what sort of things were they were they doing um i mean it ranged uh you know in the beginning when we landed and we helo inserted um the night of the invasion on february 13th they you know we took some pop shots and stuff like that but it wasn't anything too crazy because we had landed in force we had an entire company of marines there and we were you know, splitting up. So we really didn't experience too much um, until we started to break off into our separate units. You know, we started to push out and initially it was, it was kind of sloppy on their part. Um, it was more so it seemed like ambushes of opportunity and, and targets of opportunity. So we ended up like, you know, the skill of the guys that I was serving alongside those dudes were, were knocking targets down left and right. You know, we, the street would be, have, you know, we get ambushed one night, you wake up the next morning, there's four or five tallies laying there, you know, that had gotten knocked out the night before. Um, but as we, as that deployment um, progressed, a lot of their tactics progressed as well. And it got to the point where when I had, um, I had split up, I was attached to third platoon as their machine gun, um, their little machine gun team. And we had pushed out, I can't remember if it was east or west, but we were like the furthest unit um, east. So we were right out where the green zone turns to the brown zone. Um, and we are out there with third platoon, you know, we would get into a lot of U-shaped ambushes, um, a lot of complex ambushes, you know, they would have, it got to the point where they were having a sniper fire and the sniper was being covered by a machine gunner. So we couldn't identify the, the sniper's location. I know you guys dealt with that um, a little bit from what I heard as far as stories go, but I mean, they would have, you know, in the middle of an ambush, they'd have taxi cabs running to drop off new fighters and take the wounded out. And it was just like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. You know, once they kind of pulled their shit together. Um, and for us, it was, you know, it was such a kinetic environment. It was kind of learning on the fly and adjusting. 
as they got more advanced in their tactics and, and their ambushes got more and more complex, we developed ways to um, kind of counteract whatever they were going for. So, you know, we would run like bounding rear security uh, where, where a guy sets and watches the rear for the patrol. He moves 15 meters and then he sets on the knee and watches the rear for that guy to bound across. Um, you know, it got to the point where you had to do that. You were constantly that, that three-step turnaround was not enough to provide security. So, um, you know, the more they progressed, it definitely forced us to, to tailor our tactics as such and, and, and deal with the threat. But luckily we were able to, you know, uh, successfully. Yeah, of course. That <clears throat> You're obviously here telling the stories. Did you have any, any other uh, specifically unique events from that, that first deployment that, yeah, that you can think of in terms of the uh, unit or even, even just your own personal ones? No, with the, with the unit, for sure, man. Um, we had a lot of good, uh, there's too many stories to tell, but, you know, I remember like Operation Jack in the Box was one that stands out. Um, and that was kind of, we were fired from the hip. We went out one night and um, there was this little gas station uh, down the road, um, probably about three clicks down the road from us. And we had been patrolling one night and uh, we, were, we were in that tack column where you have two columns of guys going um, so what we did was we split a building. So the building was in the center of the patrol and the column went, well, this side of the column turned left and kept patrolling back to the PB, but our side of the column, we snuck into the back side of that building and backloaded it with, uh, you know, eight or nine guys. And we sat there overnight and we had seen some Taliban sneak in that night. We didn't, we didn't get the clearance to fire, but sneak in, they were intimidating the residents and, and stuff like that. And that was right across from that gas station. So we got to go ahead to launch uh, Jack in the Box. So we went down a couple nights later on and we had made entry into this compound about 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. And we staged right next to uh, the gas station where the Taliban always had their morning meetings, I guess, you know, Muhammad, you're going to get food, you know, you're going to do this so on and so forth. So, you know, the sun starts to come up and, and we're all loaded back in this little compound and we have the um, engineers load a bunch of C4 on the wall. And as soon as we start hearing them talk, he blows that C4 and just a shit storm of us comes out of this wall. <laughs> and we just grab dudes and we're starting to knock heads, you know, we're locking guys up left and right. We got guys getting back, back there, getting questioned and everything. Honestly, it was like some shit out of a movie. Like I was excited to be a part of it. <clears throat> so we're sitting down there and we have all these dudes bundled up and, and they're in the back. They're getting talked to. Well, the squad leader, he was like, let's just hang out. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. Set up 360 security um, and we'll deal with whatever happens. So we start hearing rumors. Hey, the Taliban's going to come down here and, and they're going to get some payback for you guys knocking their boys around. And my squad leader, he was a he was a get after it type motherfucker. Like he didn't shy away from combat. And he's like, tell him to come on down. We'll talk to him. You know, we'll sit now. We'll have a little shura and and all this. And not too much later, man, we started to get hit. And uh, I think that branched out to like it was like a four to six hour long firefight to get our way back to the PB. Um, we only we had one guy get shot in the ankle on that one. Um, but just the whole, like the schematics, the movement and, and like trying to fight your way back to the PB, like my machine gun ran out of ammunition. So we were kind of sitting ducks because it was such a long firefight that vehicles come down to resupply us. And, 
I mean, that was like the one of the more significant engagements that we got into, and, and that's something I'll never forget. Um, a lot of confusion as far as air goes, some friendly fire issues, and, and all sorts of shit. Man, it was a hell of a day, but it was a fun day when you look back on it. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of stories like that, a ton of ton of memorable moments from the first deployment. That's it. <clears throat> Those uh, guys who have been been deployed and you know had a similar sort of uh, tour tempo like like we've had. Um, they've everyone's got one that one day that they'll never ever forget this, you know, ingrained in their memory and they think about often and then, and thinking about often is something that I, I personally do just because one, I run the podcast. So I'm constantly talking about it. But even before that is like, I used to always think it's like, fucking hell, like, you know, work, you know, whether I'm, whatever I'm doing, I'm just like, I don't know, walking the dog or, or, you know, going for a run or whatever. It always just pops in my head. Something like, you know, something stupid, something fucking crazy, um, you know, think about one of the boys, you know, whatever it is, but there's always something that just pops in my head almost, almost daily. Uh, do you, do you have, have any of that? Um, obviously now it's about 10 years on, do you have any of that going on in terms of like, uh, regular memories or regular, like thought, um, thoughts coming up in your head? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I definitely do, you know, and with, with social media, it's almost impossible to avoid, yeah, you'll be scrolling through and seeing a picture of your buddy who got smoked or, or you'll see like a, a link to a firefight you got into or or something, you know, and it's the same thing, bro. I'll be out walking my dog and something will hit and you're just like, you're either laughing or you're like on the yeah. brink of tears, you know, just some, it, it could be the, the entire range of emotion, but yeah, almost on a daily basis, there's definitely something I think about. Um, and, you know, I still talk to my, my two roommates from the Marine Corps. <clears throat> and we talk almost on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis. So that's definitely going to trigger some, some moments. No, but I'm right there with you, brother. It's just random things that set it off. Yeah. There's, there must be, you know, I, I, I'm definitely convinced that have you had experience that's, you know, like that it's going to be the same for everyone, um, regardless of who you are and what, what you've done. Um, whether you were a fucking, uh, a Delta dude or just a fucking regular grunt like, like, uh, like you were, um, I'm pretty sure that this is going to be something that's very regular and very common. Um, and one thing I do is I, I embrace it. Like I, I tell people about something or I'll tell my wife or whatever. And I, I know a lot of people kind of keep it to themselves and ball up. So I, I, I don't know if there's anything in that. Have you noticed anything that kind of, have you noticed anything that makes those things sort of come up or just like, it's just all, random i i honestly think um <clears throat> like boredom is definitely one but um so like if i'm really bored or if i'm like you know running i i, I hate running but i i, I kind of run often and i get bored very quick running <clears throat> probably because i'm not working hard enough but um when i'm running it i always think about it for some reason <laughs> um and then oddly enough kind of you know when, it, when when i'm watching tv or whatever moments of like individual uh greatness you know someone's pulled through you know like a kid's pulled through like a cancer diagnosis or something like that from sheer like willpower and determination something like that like i get choked up and then i think about fuck like and then and then randomly some random story will pop into my head about you know fucking nadi ali 2011 it's like so fucking random i i don't know i really don't know but it's um for me there's no trigger what about yourself no i mean i've tried to you know i've tried to kind of like figure it out i know like like if i smell like a burn pit type smell 
that's like a I'll, I'll jump right back in I'm like yeah okay I remember that you know but that's that's really it. it's just completely random for me I mean uh, it's the same thing I could be watching a movie you know and like a gunfight happens in the movie or something and you're like oh fuck remember that time uh, when that happened and you know it's just just random shit I don't I don't know if there's any particular triggers as they call them yeah yeah anyway um that that obviously that deployment's over with you're back home is there is there anything in between your um your time getting home to you uh doing your pre-deployment again and building up that's kind of of note no nothing too crazy in there you know um you get back and your main goal is just to party your ass off for however long you're home <laughs> did you go on any you go on any crazy vacations no, I went home. Um, I just went back up because I was in Lejeune. So I just went home um, to Northern Virginia. And yeah, it's an easy six hour drive. So I spent the two weeks there. And I'd usually go back on weekends and just get absolutely shithoused and, and hang out with everybody. <laughs> We've all been there. <clears throat> uh, so I guess let's, yeah. let's jump into your, uh, your second deployment. So you went back to Afghanistan in 2011. Uh, this time you're a, a machine gun squad mm -hmm. leader with, with the uh, would you call it the three platoon or third platoon? Third platoon. Third, yeah. So third platoon. <clears throat> give me a give me a quick brief and a, or a quick uh, uh, back brief about that platoon. What was the what was the culture like? What was the guys like? And uh, was it a different platoon to your first deployment? Yeah, it was definitely different. Um, on that second deployment, we had. Uh, Ryan, who was the platoon sergeant, Tyler, who was my platoon commander, the leadership was definitely um, a different uh, vibe. I don't want to say better or worse, um, but it was just – you could tell there were differences, and, and a lot of them, um, you know, they made that platoon what it was. Uh, the, the squads were completely different. You know, uh, Carlos uh, um, and Colin and, and Davis and those guys – it's funny how, how different those guys can be, but how, how close they can be at the same time. Um, so it was that devil tune for sure was, was more like a family, um, especially me being attached to them. You know, I wasn't even part of that platoon um, from the onset. So being attached to them, it was, it was a very, you know, very cool environment to come into and, and a great group of guys to work with. And uh, so do you get attached to the, to that platoon because you're guns is that right yeah so they attach typically they will attach out for an appointment a squad of machine guns to each platoon so um we have three gun squads and, and first with first platoon second squad with second platoon and so forth and uh in, in general then what what's uh what's your role as a, a gun squad leader in the whole platoon are you are you touching base with platoon sergeant are you touching base with platoon commander or are you you know, is your main main go to the other squad leaders that will, I guess, square, square your your uh, gun squad away? No, really. Um, <clears throat> so when you're you're attached out, you're that weapons expert with all things that are automatic. So whether it's the Mark 19, the Mod Deuce, the 240, um, the 249s are, are squad integrated, so the 11s worry about those. Um, so I would sit up there with the squad leaders. I'd go to briefs with the platoon sergeant, the platoon commander, and uh, I would touch base directly with the leadership. So with that platoon commander, platoon sergeant, um, 
in an ideal world, you would have two machine gun teams uh, attached out to that platoon, but we always ran short. So like on my second deployment, it was just me and one other guy attached out to that platoon. Um, excuse me, uh, me and uh, two other guys. And we were attached out to that platoon. Um, and, you know, we ran all those patrols with them and everything. And, and when you're running a patrol with that particular squad, whether it be first, second or third, you're reporting to that squad leader on patrol. But then once you get back, um, especially for like patrol based security. So we would have, you know, I would, I would kind of um, say, Hey, like these are the avenues of approach that I see here. I would recommend putting a 240 in this post. Um, I put a 240 in this post. You're fine with a 249 over here. Um, and then additionally, something that was, um, you know, specific to that, that platoon as well is, when we pushed further up to Kajaki and established uh, PV Virginia, we were the for furthest north um, separating Bravo and Alpha Company. So we had had a Mark 19 allotted to us. And we set up the Mark 19 on the rooftop of one of our buildings for indirect fire so we could access, because we didn't have mortars, um, so we could access a lot of the firing um, zones across the river that we needed to. So like you know, my machine gunners were, were dictating, hey, we want this to be a target, this to be a target, that to be a target reference point, and kind of laying out that whole security work for the guys um, in that platoon as well. Yeah, and and obviously you mentioned the on, on patrol, you're reporting to the to the actual squad leader. Um, mm -hmm. But what are you carrying up as a, the gun squad leader? Are you carrying a, a 240 or are you carrying a, a, a rifle? Uh, so as the squad leader, typically I would carry the, my M4, uh, with a 203, uh, typically have a sidearm, a nine millimeter, and then I would carry, um, you know, any additional 762 that I thought my gunner should have. Um, and typically, you know, we took out anywhere between a thousand and 1200 rounds. And then the, the gunner is carrying the 240 and any additional ammo. So one gun for, per platoon, is that what you, you were working with? Uh, two guns per platoon, but then we would have uh, one gun would go out on patrol unless it was, you know, unless we expected heavy contact or something like that. Right. Yeah, I actually talked about this with uh, with my last guest, and he was he's army, he's a, a U.S. Army, and he he was explaining it as well. It's very, you know, the it seems like the the Marine Corps and the the army have a very similar way of operating their guns. So what we did in the UK is we just have an integrated. We we have the the gun integrated within the regular platoon, so. <clears throat> one guy will just get dicked and he'll be the gunner normally it'll be a a, a big guy or a senior guy um obviously one because it's fucking heavy and you know it's it's a, a decent decent gun and then two because it, it, you, there is a bit of responsibility there with, with that gun because it's obviously it's a fo massive force multiplier it's uh obviously your fire support as well if you if you if you're needing it so it normally goes to yeah. senior, senior guy bigger guy um, but it's, it's definitely integrated within the regular platoon. So it's, it's just interesting the differences that, that you, you guys have compared to us. Oh, man, we used to have wars about that too with the 11s. You know, they would say they carried the 249, so they're machine gunners. We would say we carried, you know, the M4, so we were 11s, and there was no need for the, the kind of separation. But <clears throat> at the end of the day, there's definitely uh, – we would give each other shit, obviously, all the time, but <laughs> – there were definitely things that they could do that we couldn't do and vice versa. So, uh, you know, I, I've always, I've always kind of liked that idea of the integration, but at the same time, you know, with the tactics that we were operating with at the time, I can see the need to make that a separate entity and attach it out. Um, especially yeah. like, 
when it came to training and, and needs for the mission and stuff like that. And then also we had we had our own uh, actual guns platoon, so they would do, deal with everything heavy as well. So GMG, HMG, and uh, and the the you call them two fours, but the, the GPMG um, <clears throat> in all in all various platforms, so mob, uh, mo- mobile and then static on tripods, you know, all that sort of shit. So they'll deal with um, you know setting up a, a fire support position before big attacks or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. direct fire whenever you need it or or just um, you know uh, suppress the fire if you're going into final uh, push for an, uh, an assault or whatever and they, they kind of deal with that um, usually on on these more recent deployments they've been used as a mo- mobile uh, <clears throat> kind of, uh, mobile force and the guns have been put there as a force multiplier obviously they've got their their heavy weapons so they they, they get chucked on top of a, of a vehicle and they're obviously a very fastly implemented to the area where they where they're most needed um but we we uh we off we're not often at times we sometimes actually deployed with two guns per section so two guns per squad um uh for you know ops where we knew it was going to be crazy and in particular in my company um there was one platoon i think it was maybe five platoon bravo company <clears throat> they were always on the outer cordon of the ops so they were always the, the first you know first line of defense or the first yeah, uh, yeah. and uh my my, uh, my platoon was always a search section so we were going in and doing all searching the compounds searching the the calleys or whatever it might have been uh while those those boys on out on the outer cordon were getting after it and you know we'd be kind of cursing them at, at points because we're like we're fucking in there searching for a little uh you know looking for bags of opium or fucking uh, weapons caches or whatever it might be or just evidence that the taliban's been there or you know whatever it might be um that's what we're doing clearing compounds and they're out in the cord and getting after it. and you can hear the gunfire going and you're like i want fucking some of that but right now i'm you know absolutely sucking climbing over these walls i'm doing yeah i always enjoy that though man i like kicking on doors and and, and searching compounds and stuff it was, it was cool i mean yeah of course a hundred percent but when, like there comes a time where you know there's nothing there and it's the, oh, yeah, boys, sure. the boys on the outside are getting all the all the attention you're like fucking give me some of that <laughs> yeah right um so obviously your second deployment and you're pushing into sangin and marja um sangin mean sangin has a, a i actually put a post about up about this the other day but about sangin and sangin to people who have been there means something different to than people who have just heard about sangin uh, so t- yeah, tell yeah. me tell me about your experiences in, in Sangin and, and what your what your overall thoughts are about about that AO. It was uh it was a different world, man. Um, we had taken over uh, PB Fahim, which the Brits had had um, in the green zone prior to the unit that we ripped out with, I believe, if if I'm recalling that history correctly. Um, but that green zone, man, it was a different world, you know, going into uh, into those cornfields, you know, the five foot high, six foot tall corn stalks and and not being able to see what's five feet in front of you versus what we experienced on the first deployment. Um, it, it, if you ran point, man, your asshole was tight the whole fucking time just because <laughs> you had no idea what you could be running into. And then I'm sure you're aware of it, but going through those cornfields, you would have those random alleys in the cornfield that would pop up, you know, it'd be like a small goat trail or something. 
and you couldn't see him come up. So you pop and just to the right or left of you, you got a hundred meter trail going in either direction. It was a perfect avenue of approach for an automatic weapon. Um, so it kept you on your toes. Um, it, it was, it was, it wasn't as kinetic for us, for, for my platoon as the first deployment, but I know like Bravo company, Bravo company was, was getting it pretty heavy, um, up North closer to Kajaki. And then, um, our weapons company guys, they, they got hammered pretty good when they went across the river and established their PB. So like we had our fair share of gunfights and, and, you know, dealt with IEDs, but, um, for the most part, a lot of the other guys had had a, a way more difficult time um, than we did. You know, that deployment, I think we we kind of lucked out. We took a couple, but nothing like the other guys around us. Yeah, singing um, <clears throat> singing and IEDs is just <laughs> is is um, the some of the some of the reports up we were getting when we we're getting briefs in briefs at night. Um, from the you know platoon commander or company commander whatever it's like right another six dead today in sang and, and then the next day it was like another another three kia today in sang and, and it was id 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 and then it was like right another two guys today killed in a gunfight and sang and it's like fucking hell and we 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 would say that we were having it pretty tough as well so anyone that's been operating up up there and i only went there twice i think we were doing strike ops so i didn't spend a whole lot of time up there uh, but the time the the actually the second time that i went there we'd never done anything uh the first time was pretty tasty though um but the guys who were actually ground holding troops there fucking hell i take my hat off to them because uh, having to live with with that day in day out and the torment that you know the mental torment it, that it must be putting on them knowing that you know they've just essentially had their full comp uh your their full platoon replaced of guys knowing that they're going out there again in the same environment and with the exact same resources and equipment that they had the weeks and months prior. And, you know, guys are getting, guys are getting whacked left, right and center, but, um, they, they really, I guess, tested the waters with their IEDs there in, in Sangin and they were doing a, a directional charges out, out of the walls, uh, about torso height. Uh, and they, they were also, you know, super complex, like really daisy chain in these directional charges, um on uh on uh if i believe right rf so over mm -hmm. radio frequency they're doing these you know daisy chained directional charges in the walls and they'd done that having studied the guys ttps so they know that if, if the the boys came up to a corner of a compound they'd stop uh the the, the, the platoon would you know through fatigue probably take a knee lean against the wall you know take a little break uh, whatever it might be while well, they they get this you know guy the front the the lead man gets an idea of where he's heading to next and you know after a while of doing that years of being operating in the area they get an idea of right if we if we just put one id in this wall and get lucky one day all we need to do is wait for them to stop and just blow it uh, and that's what happened and I'm, you know i'm pretty sure a full squad got wiped out um minus maybe a couple of serious casuals and and you know, hearing that report come back, it's just like, Jesus Christ, like, what the fuck is going on up in Sangin? Um, and like I said, I, I spend a, a shit ton of time up there, but it's still to me, it's um, it means a lot because just because of hearing what the what boys from the from the Brits and the, the Marines had been uh involved with up there, you know, it was, it was pretty much hell on earth at the time. Uh, and I've got here in my notes, yeah, that was <laughs> I've got here in my notes, Sangin is a fucking cesspit of death. Yeah. Yeah, that was 
That was a different fucking environment, man. I did, I did not like that place at all. Um, do you have any any particular highlights from, from that from that deployment? Then, obviously, uh, you you were there in the green zone compared to the I guess the more open desert type area. Um, some of the some of the highlights I have from working in the greens are aren't any contacts or anything, but guys just falling over little bridges and at the rivers or, or irrigation ditches and all that sort of shit. So, do you have anything that you can think of that's a that's a, a highlight for you from from that deployment in in uh, the the green zone? Um, I mean, yeah, we used to call it. We used to say it was an Olympic sport, body jumping. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd see the guy get the little little uh, startup, and he would get nervous and stop, and then recharge, and then finally make the jump, but fall in inevitably. Um, there's a, a couple different options, you know. Like we tried to set up schools and stuff like that in the environment because the Taliban had such a hold on the area. Um, you know, we tried to do a lot of like. Um, like relations with the community and stuff like that. You know, there's different patrols and stuff and missions that pop into mind and stuff like that, but I won't, I won't drone on with kind of the same material that we've, we've covered, but um, yeah, man, just, I think overall it's just the green zone. And, and the, the weirdest thing about that too, was you associate Afghanistan in general with heat and like you would think heat casualties would be such a big thing. Um, but second, we dealt with that, you know, tenfold compared to the first deployment because once they irrigate those, uh, those cornfields and everything, and you're patrolling through there with 75 to 100 pounds of gear on, that heat becomes a different animal, man. And you would see guys, you know, you'd stop for a for a, a damn quick stop in the middle of a patrol, and some guy would go out. You'd have to get him up, or Doc would have to give him an IV or something like that. But yeah, that was a different that was a different battlefield, bro. The fucking yeah, you've not you've not just got to worry about the enemy, but the heat as well. And uh, you know, it, it catches everyone, and it's you know. I guess it's through no fault of anyone's because like, what the fuck are you going to do? If you're going to have to move, you're going to move. You can't stop, find shade, cool the person down, fan if possible. You can't do any of that shit if you're fucking in a contact, uh, bro. You just need to graze on and just hope that you don't keel over. But um, yeah, I, I remember a couple of guys with heat casualties, come down as heat casualties. If I remember rightly, one of the platoon sergeants uh, actually got heat stroke and fucking had to get casualized out. Um, and then prickly heat was the other one. Um, and yeah. those in those irrigation ditches, you know, you're fucking, you're 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 getting very moist and sweaty and whatnot, and and obviously the prickly heat builds up, and you got that pressure of your your backpack pressing in against your plate, pressing in against your t-shirt, pressing in against your body. That fucking sweat is just going inside. It's not coming out. You're you're not you're not cooling your body off. It's going going inside and the prickly heat was one of the big biggest things that I, I remember guys having to deal with deal with come off a patrol and guys would just be fucking ripping their kit off it's like scratch my fucking back <laughs> scratch my back <laughs> it's like absolute torture but um yeah in terms of getting back then is there anything that you, you can think post deployment of uh <clears throat> of no um no, not really. I mean, that deployment was, I think that one was more a relief to come back from just because the, like we had talked about before, the guys that went before us, um, we had heard, you know, the horror stories and, and how bad versus like Marja was hyped up by the media, but Sangin was backed by facts because those, you know, there had been units fighting there, the Brits, the, the, um, the Marines had been there, you know, and we actually were able to see the casualty totals. 
So I think coming back from that deployment was just, you know, after you got back, was it was more of a, a relief in, in some way because of what had happened in that area beforehand. And um, even I know like Bravo Company, they had to deal with like suicide bombers and shit. Like they had a, a guy on a moped hit um, one of the bazaars or one of the little markets like pretty heavy. And there was a lot of casualties with that. So um, I think actually coming from that one, the biggest thing I remember was like the, just the feeling of relief. Like, fuck, we made it out of Kajaki or we made it out of Sangin. Yeah. Um, and just because of like what you were talking, like the historical aspect of it and, and uh, the casualties that had amounted in that area. Yeah, it's fucking, it's, it's fucking a horrible place. And uh, I'm glad that these boys never suffered too, too badly from it. But um, I guess the next thing we should probably roll on to in, uh, in, in terms of getting through this is uh, your, uh, your time with the 22nd, uh, what do you call it? Mew? M-E-U? Mm-hmm. Mew? What is that? <clears throat> Uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit. So, um, you know, a lot of times before they like the Garmisch deployment started out as a MU for one six, where they were on a boat and were essentially like the Marines reactionary force. Like, hey, if some shit pops up in this area, we got a force on standby within a reasonable response time. We can send them in. Um, so that's what we kind of were, and that's right when. Uh, 2014 time frame that's kind of when isis started acting up and you know they thought their dicks were a little bit bigger than they were um so you know that mew we kind of hung out in that area like the iraq area the syria area off uh, off the coast of africa um just to kind of we didn't get to do anything as far as combat wise like we were set up for missions but um, a lot of it was just boat living man that that mew life is terrible and so the whole time you're actually on a big fucking ship, you're not like stationed in Dubai or anything like that. No, we got to hit a bunch of ports along the way, but uh, those ports were uh, a lot of uh, a lot of questionable behavior took place in those ports. <laughs> <and wasn't> related. <laughs> <laughs> we, awesome. to, uh, we went into Djibouti. Um, you know, we did some training there. Um, you know, we stopped in Spain, Germany, Croatia. Um, we stopped in Kuwait for a little bit and we actually, that's where we got set up for a bunch of our missions that never came to fruition was we, we went to Kuwait because of what was going on in Iraq, um, with ISIS and, um, you know, there was the evacuation of the mountain that ISIS was supposed to be taking all those prisoners, um, with, I can't remember the name but we were supposed to get set up to be security for the embassy. We sent some guys to the embassy for a little bit, um, the airfield. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing ever amounted to anything. We were just standing there, standing by to stand by. Yeah. Hurry up and wait, sit in your kit. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what's, what, what's life like living on a big ship full of fucking Navy guys and girls? <laughs> Tensions are high, bro. Tensions are really high. Um, Every once in a while, you know, you'd, you'd find out a Marine was sleeping with one of the Navy chicks or had snuck her into the bunk that night or went off to port, you know, and they ended up hooking up drunk at a hotel somewhere. Um, but with the guys on ship, uh, there was a there was a, a pretty decent amount of fights between the Marines and the Navy um, just because tensions were so high. Because the Navy, you know, when they're on boat, they're there to work. Like, that's that's what they do when we're on boat we're just standing by to go to work. So they would get pissed off at us all the time because we'd, we'd supplement the, their duties. Like we'd work in the chow hall if they needed us to, or 
or we'd go stand radio watch in the in the um talk or, or whatever it may have been but they still got upset with us like i remember one time there was a, a single door that had separated my platoon from the navy side and when you walked through that door it was an open hatch it was never closed when you walked through that door there was a uh, water fountain right there and we always drank out of that water fountain. Well, the Navy was responsible for field day of their respected areas. Um, and I guess they had just gotten done field daying. And one of my guys went over there and drank out of that water fountain after they had gotten done cleaning it. And it was like a, a area clearing fight that took place. Um, <laughs> the Navy guy started screaming at my guy about getting water in the fucking water fountain. And then once a Marine heard that the Navy guy was yelling at a Marine, you know, just everything just snapped. And, and there are guys being held up against the wall by their necks and, and, you know, just all sorts of shit. But even in between, like, even within my platoon, there were fights because um, we'd play video games to kill time. Like, we would have Madden tournaments all the time. And I remember one of my younger guys had beat the senior guy in Madden and the senior guy got pissed off about something and I heard some screaming. So, like, we went in there and he had his hands on my junior guy. So, we got you know, we got to throw in hands with each other, but it was just, uh, you know, you lock a bunch of pit bulls up in a cage together. Eventually <laughs> they're fighting with one another. So it wasn't ideal for us. That's, that's for sure. I mean, I guess you wouldn't have it any other way though. Right. Um, in terms of, in terms of your day-to-day -day routine, what, what are you doing? I, I guess that you, you've got a set uh, allocation of time for, uh, doing some lessons on, you know, tactics, you know, you know, training and just regular stuffy and, I'm sure you're PTing every day. Oh yeah, we would um, we would work out. You know, first thing you get up, you go to breakfast in the chow hall. Uh, I mean, at, the line was almost around the ship. We were on an LPD, so it was like the smaller of the three boats in the fleet that we had. Um, so the line to get to chow took forever. So typically, you know, after that, you you do some weapons maintenance in the morning and get lunch knocked out. But <clears throat> we between myself the assault men section leader that i was bunked with and the and the lieutenant for weapons platoon we would come up with training we would run you know drill five paragraph orders when the captain of the boat let us get on the flight deck we would go on the flight deck and do some guns training um never got to shoot on ship really the captain just didn't like us to shoot on the back of the boat um pussy. So, what's that pussy i know man we fucking but the navy got to shoot all the time fucking <laughs> But a lot of it was just, you know, dry weapons training and, and running drills and just hammering book knowledge home. Was you, what, what type of PT were you doing? Uh, it would differ. So we would go out to the flight deck and we would run for hours in circles on the flight deck. <laughs> um, fucking monotonous, man. Um, they had decent gyms. You know, when the waves or the swells weren't too high, we would be able to go to the gym and access it and just go on, you know, personal PT time. Um, but often we would go down to the well decks, you know, we'd take the entire platoon down there. And I think there was like three or four levels of well decks. So you'd start at the bottom, do a rotation of exercise, jog up to the next one and just keep going up and hitting different checkpoints and doing different workouts to try to keep the guys in shape. Yeah. Got to do the best with what, what you've got, right? Um, I'm sure after a while that got boring as hell. Oh, for fucking sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> you can only walk in so many circles before it becomes so mundane you can't stand it yeah you mentioned some of the uh some of the ports you went to so croatia um uh, is for a lot of people who don't know is fucking beautiful uh oh, what yeah. was it like what was it like cruising past that sort of 
um, southern or northern Mediterranean coast, Croatia, Italy sort of area. Could you were you were you hugging it tightly enough that you got to see it, or were you kind of just out at sea? No, I mean, really, the only time I can recall seeing like land on either side was when we passed through the Suez. Um, other than that, we were out in, in the open ocean for the most part. Um, Croatia, if I recall correctly, we stopped there for like a week and that was an absolute shit show. I mean, I came out with an ass tattoo. I was so drunk. <laughs> just, just a mess. Me and a buddy got an ass tattoo with a couple Croatian Marines that we had met that night. Um, <laughs> it was a fucking gnarly story. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're out in the open sea most of the time. You know, we got to the one, the other cool thing we did was we got to stop in Israel um, and train with their special forces guys for you know, two to three weeks. Uh, a group of, I think a group of eight of us or, or 10 of us went in there and trained with them for a couple of weeks. That was an awesome fucking experience. How is Israel? Because I, I, that's somewhere I'd, <laughs> I, I'm looking to go in the future, but I've, I've not been there yet and I've uh, not really had much exposure. But, um, you know, definitely somewhere that, that looks like, uh, it tickles my fancy, so to speak. You enjoy yeah. it? Oh yeah, it was. It was a, we went to Elot um, and hung out there, um, and it was cool. You know, we got there, and you know, we got the whole welcoming party from from their military and extremely generous people. Um, I was really surprised at how many like foreigners had joined their military. You know, Americans, uh, Brits, you know, the like. Um, so we got to hang out there. Um, and they would they would make arrangements to take us out um, downtown and, and go see a little little bit more of Israel and always provide us with armed guards and, and make sure that our security was kind of like their top priority. I would definitely go like between Israel and Croatia. Those are the two places I would I would visit again for sure. Damn, that's awesome. Yeah, what, once things once things kind of quiet down with uh, Corona bollocks and and the shit that's going on in Israel at the minute, I'm definitely going to take a trip over there um, in Croatia as well. I had a a couple of years ago, I'd pla planned a trip to go to uh, Ultra Festival. I don't know if you've followed dance music much, but they, they had a big fucking festival out in, out in uh, Croatia called Ultra Festival. It's over two weekends. They do one in Miami. It's the same thing. It's over two weekends. It's, you know, really? one of the yeah one of the biggest dance dance festivals in the world. But they, they what they do in uh, in Croatia is they have one in Split. So it's like a city in, in on the coast in Croatia. And then they have one on, on like uh, Havar which is a, a group of islands. So they, the first part of the festival is in the city and they do it in a big, uh, big stadium. And then the second part's like at this fucking insane looking resort on this, you know, private island type thing. So it's, it's it, you know, it's kind of one of those like once in a lifetime experiences. So that's something I had planned a couple of years ago and just with work and, you know, what, what, whatnot. Um, I was in the army at the time still. I just never came, came around, but, definitely somewhere that's on the on the list to go and check out and obviously israel as well um obviously being from europe i've been to almost all of the countries in europe apart from you know a, a, a select few in croatia is one of them um but israel is definitely somewhere on my radar as well that i'm going to go yeah they're both gorgeous man i'll definitely check them out when you get the chance uh, uh heading back to the states then and and, and the 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 next post you got to is a instructor at Quantico. So just uh, give uh, guys a, a bit of a, a a brief about what what Quantico is and and what your what your sort of uh, expectations were of of your work output there as a as an instructor. Um, so Quantico is 
um, if you look through any military installation, Quantico is going to be up there with the top tier um, training organizations in the world. And, and mainly because that's where all Marine Corps officers go to train. They start on the main side and go through OCS. And then once they get done on the main side, they come over to the basic school, which is where they learn. It's like our SOI. They learn all their infantry tactics. Um, so going into it, like I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I'd been an instructor in some form or fashion in the Marine Corps before, but it wasn't in such a structured and professional environment. It was more so, you know, to my guys or to other battalions. Um, and it, there was no real formal schooling. So like I got to Quantico and when I got there, I was putting the, um, I was a machine gun instructor. So the lieutenants would have a week during their basic school instruction where they would be taught the machine guns. And that was really what we did initially. And we would cover, you know, the 249. We would talk about the, the historical weapons, the Browning automatic rifle, so on and so forth. Um, and then we would take them all the way through the Mark 19. And then the final day of that week, we would do a machine gun shoot with them where they got to shoot all the weapon systems. And then we were hands off. Um, but quickly after um, getting to Quantico, I had an interview uh, with the dugout, which is there's the dugout and then there's the bullpen. So the dugout is all enlisted instructors that teaches, you know, every aspect of the lieutenant's training while they're at the basic school. And then the, the bullpen was the officer cadre. So the captains, the majors, the lieutenant colonel. So we would work side by side with them um, to teach classroom instruction, to teach field instruction, where we'd go to the field for a week with the lieutenants and just teach them out there. Um, but we taught everything from basic weapon systems all the way up to platoon and company level operations. Um, and it would range from field instruction. You know, we used to have stacks tables, which were sand tables where you would run different operations and kind of war game with them. Um, and I think I already said classroom instruction where we would teach hours and hours of lectures to these guys. Um, so the expectation was way different than the reality um, of getting there, but it's definitely, I would say probably one of the more rewarding uh, poor, like periods of my career for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I've, I, you know, I, I've heard a quantum call before. I just, you know, I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's guys listening that probably don't know what it is. Uh, so thanks. But you mentioned that um, you, you had instructed previously, um, before getting here but the the level was that step up so did you did you have to take any schooling yourself or go on any courses to get up to that level or is it just trial through error um no it's definitely not trial through error there's no like i mean when you get to quantico to become a machine gun instructor it's kind of like you get dropped in and then the machine gunners that are already instructors, they'll kind of run you through the process. Hey man, this is what you want to do. This is what you don't want to do. You know, it's, it's a lower level of instruction um, than what the dugout was, but the dugout, you had like an actual vetting process to go through. So you would go through um, their, their little uh, week or two week long course where you would be evaluated on every aspect of it. So, for instance, like if you had a platform instruction, they would give you a topic and say, hey, Jay, this is your topic to teach. And you'll be teaching, you know, this period of instruction for 15 minutes on this date. And you would have that much time to kind of, um, you know, build up to it. So you would be in the classroom with your little PowerPoint and you'd be clicking slides. You'd be rehearsing for a week, for a week, two weeks, whatever it was. And then once you felt confident, you would tell the um, 
you know, the senior enlisted guy, uh, the gunny at the time, Hey man, I'm ready to kick this class. Um, are we good? And then he would bring in all the dugout instructors, the bullpen would come in, the major would come in, the Lieutenant Colonel would come in and occasionally the Colonel would come in the, the, uh, commandant of the basic school would come in and you would teach your period of instruction to them. And then they would, you know, kick you out of the room and say, Hey, let's have a meeting of the minds, kind of see what Jay did wrong, what he did right. And then they'd bring you back in and critique you. Um, and then basically say, yeah, you're good to teach platform or you're not good. You need to keep practicing and maybe build up to it. And it was the same way with um, the same kind of process with field exercises, the same process with stacks tables. Um, and then once you got to the point where you were cleared to teach all of those events, then you would partake in the vetting process for the guys that were coming up and wanted to teach it. So it was a very, um, structured, rigid environment to, to kind of get to the point where you can teach. Yeah, it sounds like the, the realities of that initial period is that you get a lot of time to prep for your, your lesson, which is, you know, as you said there, 15 minutes, quite short. Um, what was the reality of, of life afterwards when you, when you got accepted? I'm, I'm pretty sure it goes something like, right, here's 20 lessons. You've got two weeks to get squared for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once, you know, once you make it through that vetting process, you, you had, like I started, um, I was like the squad level tactics kind of guy. Um, so I taught those different classes, like the ambush class, um, the patrolling class and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, they threw it in your plate and they were like, here, get ready for it. <laughs> it's a different world, bro. When you have, you know, when you have 15 people in the classroom and they're evaluating you, it's completely different when the next week you have 300 students that are all college graduates or some of them have been in the military for 15 years and they just decided to be an officer. And it's like the smallest hiccup is going to change the entire game plan of that course. Like I've made so many stupid mistakes, man. I was, uh, I'll never forget. Like I was teaching them about like cleaning their weapon systems. And I meant to say, if you shoot this gun too much and don't clean it, it's going to get all gummed up. Well, instead of saying gummed up, I said cummed up. <laughs> I lost all credibility like from that point, you know, my nerves the better of me. And there were like people laughing, people trying to stay professional, but you know, those small mistakes can just make the difference for that class if they're gonna take you serious or not. It's uh it's definitely something to be uh, admired though, having to, you know, having that much pressure and that much uh I guess workload put onto you and just being told to figure it out. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's generally how, how life as an infantry soldier is. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a problem. Fucking figure it out. I don't care how it gets done. Just get it done. Um, and that like, like you've just described there goes to academics as well. Like it's not just that, you know, infantry, infantry guys can, can fucking build a sandbag wall on a roof and in an hour and have it all, you know, laid out with a perfect dimensions and the right depth of sandbags and all that yeah you can figure out that shit but you can also take fucking four five weeks of training program make sure they've got exactly what they need for each lesson make sure that the lesson's been read through and understand make sure they've done rehearsals so that you know when they get there everything just goes uh, and flows smoothly and you know people listening that don't understand what what it is to be a soldier that's pretty much what it is it's getting thrown shit thrown shit at your left right and center and just being told to deal with it um and especially being a being a grunt it is so far and wide your job remit is 
anything from building a sandbag wall to instructing 300 lieutenants uh, on on the the uh, on an anti-personnel ambush it's it's so far and wide that it's 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 definitely something to be admired uh and it's, it's, it's something that you can take out into civilian sector as well uh and and use to your advantage i don't know if you've you've had any um anything that you've you, you've noticed about that jay since you've left it right i've had this problem before in terms of you know education maybe and uh, an educational workload for the fire department or whatever when you're doing the training it's like i've had this before it's no problem now because i know that i've got the capability it just it's just like a, like it used to be problem let's solve it oh yeah for sure and and uh that's I, dude i hate when i hear people like especially and not to take anything away from any other mos or anything like that but i hear people talk about like a dumb grunt or or so on and so forth but I like being in the infantry and, and and talking to infantry guys, regardless of their branch of force or their country of origin, the problem solving skills that an infantry guy possesses versus other, um, other MOSs or other jobs is like, it's, it's, it's not comparable just because like you said, they've been thrown that shit, but the shit that they've been thrown is on top of them getting shot at or, or being blown up or whatever. And they have to work through, this extremely meticulous process in such a, a timely fashion to make sort of the outcome is what they want. Um, yeah, I think the infantry guys, that mindset they possess as far as problem solving and just like the grit to have to, to push through is, is unparalleled when you look at, you know, different MOSs or different jobs, whatever it may be. Yeah. Uh, how, how was it working with the the, the, ten, the lieutenants there, uh, lieutenants? Um, were they personable to you or was it kind of like that? Was there a gap there uh, in terms of I'm an instructor, you're the, you're the cadet or you're the lieutenant, whatever? Um, it, it was, you know, they knew, they kind of knew. It was a respect on both sides because we were the instructors, but at the same time we're enlisted and they're still commissioned officers. So we have to pay them that respect that a commissioned officer deserves. And at the same time, their students and they have to respect us as instructors, but they realize that we still owe them that respect as an officer. Um, so it was definitely, it was a very fine line to walk. Um, and more often than not, the instructor role superseded the officer role as far as that respect went. Um, Cause you know, at the end of the day, we're responsible for their placement in their class, the placement of graduation, and then that affects what job they get. So they kind of understood that while we have to give you a salute and say, yes, sir, no, ma'am, at the same time, we can affect the entire course of your military career based on how you perform in front of us. Um, so there was there was the mutual respect, but I think they understood that our, our position superseded theirs. Um, and it showed, you know, like you would go out to field ops and, and people put these officers on a pedestal and you expect like this better performance out of them than you would your PFC or, or your Lance Corporal. Uh, but you would see some of the same issues arise. Like we would go out on field ops and they would say, so before they went on a field op, they would say, Hey, Lieutenant so-and-so you're going to be the patrol leader. You need to write a five paragraph order, brief your order, and then lead the patrol. I mean, you would get to the field and you'd have guys that wouldn't show up with a five paragraph order and they'd try to wing it or, you know, people that would show up with it half written. And that's when you had to step in as the instructor and kind of like lay down the hammer and, and let them know, you know, it's not just their career they're affecting. Eventually, they're going to be in charge of Marines and lives are at stake and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a, it was a, a, 
it was a good it, it works i mean just the way that the basic school has it laid out the dynamic there as far as the instructor responsibilities um there's definitely that mutual respect and it, it allows things to work and it gives the enlisted instructors that kind of leg up to say hey um you know this is where we're coming from this is why you need to adhere to the standards that we're going to set but another big thing um, that i heard time and again was the enlisted instructors versus the officers they held a little bit more um uh i can't think of the word i guess their input meant a little bit more because they knew the officers knew they were hearing from the people directly that they would be leading in the future mm -hmm. that makes sense and no doubt as well that these guys like you, like you uh, had all been there, done that, seen it before. Um, and so they couldn't tell them they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the best part. Got payback, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What the fuck do you know? Have you been downrange? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and at, at, at the the place we are at Quantico, was it just infantry or was it, was it all arms? Or was it we were all back? arms. All arms. Yeah, they had... Um, the lieutenants, so we only had two tiers of schooling as far as the infantry goes. Um, but like lieutenants and other MOSs, they would go through essentially three tiers. They would go through the OCS, which is the basically their boot camp. They would go through TBS, which teaches all arms, um, the infantry skills. And then they would either go to, if they were infantry, they'd go to the IFC infantry officers course to learn how to be an infantry officer. Or they would go to their respected MOS schools, uh, you know, wherever it may have been in the U.S. that they would go to. And then from there, they would go to the fleet and actually have a chance to lead Marines. Yeah. Uh, so you had guys on, on your course from, uh, you know, what were they, logistics officers and then infantry officers and, you know, kind of all, all, all over the, the, the board? Oh, for sure. Yeah, they were all integrated. You know, we taught male and female. Um, they were integrated as far as that goes. And we even taught... Um, Mustangs that were, or chief warrant officers that came through chief warrant officer school, which was a once a year school, but we would teach those guys as well. What the hell were you teaching those guys? Dude, I don't know. More often than not, they were teaching us. Like, <laughs> that say. was a nerve wracking time because you slip up one piece of information, you got 40 guys on you. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so a little while after that, then you ended up getting out out the out the Marine Corps. What what was the what was the catalyst for that? Um, well, for one thing, the, the biggest thing was the war was kind of drawing down, or at the time we thought the war was drawing down. Um, but another thing was, um, you know, when I when I went to Quantico, are you familiar with the term B billet? No. So like when you're in the Marine Corps, you have to do a B billet. So they want you to go get some experience in the Marine Corps. So go be a recruiter, go be an instructor at SOI, the school of infantry, you know, go do some different job outside of the infantry and then you can come back. Well, I went to Quantico under the guise that that was going to be my B billet. Um, I had taught for two years at Quantico and they hadn't really, you know, vetted that as being a B billet at the time. So they told me when I had gotten done, I would most likely have to go do a legitimate B billet. So go back to recruiting for three years, go be a drill instructor, go be an SOI instructor. And I was just like, look, man, I already did my time. What I thought was going to be a B billet. I'm not going to miss out on another three years in the infantry because you want me to have a more diverse skill set as far as dealing with people or whatever the justification was. So 
rather than deal with that, I decided to get out um, and just pursue a different career path. Yeah. Uh, how how was your uh, how was your transition out then? What was the what were some of the 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 hurdles or 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 even um, positive things that came out of it? It was tough, man. For me, it was really tough. Um, you know, I remember at Quantico, um, there was a corpsman who had recently separated and, and he said to me, he used to come to Quantico all the time to visit some buddies. And he was like, look, just make sure you have shit lined up for when you get out. Cause you're going to go fucking nuts if you don't. Um, and I was like, whatever, man, I have my shit together. You know, I'll be fine when I get out. You know, I thought I was ready to get out. So I had lined up, you know, I was going to nursing school when I got out. Um, and I, fully intended to commit myself to school a hundred percent of the time. But when you get out a losing that, that structure that you had for the past 10 years in the military, um, losing kind of that brotherhood, I guess you could say sisterhood, whatever. Um, and then essentially like all your time is just free. Um, it was a, it was a tough transition, you know, as with most veterans, you get out and, and what are you going to do in your free time? If you have nothing to do, you're, you're drinking or you're going shooting um, or you're doing some dumb shit. And that's kind of like what took over my life for like the next year, year and a half. So I was kind of in and out of school, you know, trying to figure out if I really wanted to be a nurse or whatever. And then eventually I settled on, um, on the fire department. As I said before, I wanted to be one when I was a kid. Um, and then once I got integrated into the fire department, got through the schooling and everything like that, the transition became a lot smoother, a lot quicker. Um, so really it was just like that lack of planning that I thought I had in place. I, you know, when I got to see reality, I realized that I didn't really have as much of a substantial plan in place as I thought. Uh, you, you can be as honest as you want, or you can maybe, you know, kind of bend the truth here, but did, uh, was there any sort of a thought process in your mind thinking, I'm a fucking 10 year Marine Corps veteran here. I, I, when I walk out, someone's going to hand me a job. Oh, for sure, man. I mean, because you, 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 when you're in the military, you know, especially in the infantry, there's a stigma associated with it. You know, it's a constant dick swinging contest to see yeah. who is more in physical shape, who's the better leader, so on and so forth. You come out of Quantico, which is like the premier school of the Marine Corps, as they tell. Um, so you're like, for sure, I'm going to, you know, I'll just slide through this thing and, and everything is going to work out and dead fucking wrong, bro. Like that, that sense of confidence definitely needs to be checked or, or arrogance as far as you want to go needs to be checked. And, and you got to humble yourself quick because it's a different 100%. world. I, I, I did consider myself to be a, a, you know, a pretty humble guy while, while I was serving, but I definitely had that thinking, fuck, I'm the cream of the crop. Like I've got all this experience. I'm, I've got this type of mentality. <laughs> Hey, I've got this type of mentality. When I get out, man, someone's going to be lighting, like someone's going to be at my front door just mm -hmm. fucking handing me work. And that was, <laughs> couldn't be further from the truth. So I actually went, moved to the States. My wife's from the States. And yeah, come here. Poor dog. Um, <laughs> the wife's shouting at him. <laughs> so I actually went to the States and uh, when I was, I'd planned to move uh, over there. My wife's American <clears throat> and I started taking up work as a landscaper. Obviously, it was, you know, it was just, you know, the, the sort of work that you get when you first get out. Um, I did that for a bit, kind of enjoyed it because there was no responsibility. It was hard work. And that hard work is really what I, I leaned in on um, because it was a bit of a struggle knowing exactly what the fuck I was going to do. Um, so the, the landscaping work was actually pretty good for, 
you know, probably to, to keep me, keep me grounded, keep me working. Um, and then just kind of save me from, like you said, going, going to the bottle or going on a downward spiral. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, a whole set of circumstances, circumstances, uh, <laughs> transpired and ended up coming back to the UK. Uh, and when I came back, <clears throat> I never had a job, but then that's when I had to start looking for a proper job, so to speak. Um, and that was the time where I thought, fuck this, when I break this uh, resume up, you know, start firing this out. I'm like, my, my phone call is going to be red. My phone's going to be red hot. Uh, about a month later, I was starting to question that two months <laughs> later, I was thinking, what the fuck am I going to do? Three months later, I, I eventually, eventually had to change track and kind of switch up my game plan a little bit and then uh, got myself on a couple of vocational co uh, courses, got qualified in uh, some private security stuff and, and managed to get um, my foot in the door there. But, you know, I had to start right back at the bottom, like private, first day of boot camp again, first day of basic training again, you know, right at the bottom, you know, shit money, shit task, um, but you have to pay your dues, man. Like no one's going to hand you shit when you go out. And I don't know if people, you know, the army certainly never prepared me for that. Um, they were filling my head full of shit thinking, oh yeah, you're going to get fucking some senior ops manager job at, at Amazon or fucking Apple or whatever. I'm thinking, fuck yeah, here we go. Where's the money at? But that's not the case. It's uh, not the case for most. The Marine Corps has this little little thing you have to do at the end of your time you know before you're about to eas and it's this uh they call it tr trs transition readiness seminar or something like that and it's just like some fucking fat guy eating a sandwich like teaching you how to manage your money and, and all sorts of bullshit but like the guy we had he essentially just stood up there for two weeks and was boasting about how much money he makes and all this other nonsense and really taught you no tangible skills to get out and make that transition so there's no, like you said, I mean, there's no, there's no set path for them to kind of say, Hey, this is how you need to go about things. Once you get out there, it's kind of just like, Hey, thanks for serving with us for so many years. We're going to drop you on your ass in the middle of nowhere and see how you work it out. Yeah. It's weird that they bring in civilians to teach military guys how to, how to be a civilian. They should probably teach ex military guys that have been through it, how to be a fucking, how to be a civilian. Um, well, I had a thought there. I can't remember. It's fucking. It's lost on me. But um, like I that that was it. So what I what I needed and what I didn't know at the time, but I now know is I needed someone like myself to go in there and say, "Listen, if you think you're going to walk out of here and walk into a fucking high flying job, you are dead wrong. You are going to start right at the bottom of society again. No one's going to give a fuck that you served in the army. No one's going to no no all this sort of shit that you might think that." actually has any weight it doesn't make me have anything you're going to have to do this shit called linkedin that fucking grinds your gears you know you're going to have to network with people you're going to have to do all this sort of shit that you really don't want to do but if you do it you'll win and if you don't you'll fucking be a loser um and that's literally that that's the, the that two-week package that you that you just described in fucking in two minutes and that's all i needed to hear and uh, but <laughs> it probably doesn't work because I, at the time I probably wouldn't have listened to that guy. I probably would have said, yeah, well, fucking whatever. Who the fuck are you? You're probably a loser when you were in, but um, <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe you just need to experience all this shit to, to, to actually appreciate what it is that, um, that you're chasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They need somebody to just slap you in the reality and let you know what, what, what's actually going to happen and not, 
not sugarcoat it. And like you said, people are just going to tell you that, Hey, you're going to have plenty of jobs. And <laughs> I mean, we're used to being told the truth and, and being told it in a very blunt fashion, you know, and, and having civilians come in and do that, that's not what they're doing. They're not, yeah. not giving it to you real. Like you need to hear it. They're stroking your ego. Yeah. Um, how is, uh, how, how is it getting into the fire uh, department? Because I know it's quite a sought after job and it's, uh, was there much competition there uh, between the, 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 the guys and girls going for those positions that, that you eventually went for? Yeah, there's a ton of competition, man. Like I, I work with guys. I went to school with guys that had been, it was their 10th year applying. Damn. Um, they had just been waiting to get the job, but I applied to, um, I think seven different departments. And as I, I got two offers out of seven departments, and as I was signing the con, the, the um, job offer for one, the other called me and just because of like the work schedule, the pay, you know, the city that it was in, I decided to take that one. Um, but I got lucky. Uh, they do, they really, the department I work for really appreciates like military service because they pride themselves on being a very militaristic um, kind of training academy um so they do they like the military you know they like um sort of that discipline that comes with it so i got extremely lucky uh that i got in on my first time applying and that transition man if i tell my friends all the time um you know just the transition from being in the military to the fire department it, it's it's almost like you're moving directly into it without any sort of um you know any sort of uh like issues along the way, because like you said, you got to start at the bottom again, you know, you're going back to rookie school, you're getting yelled at, you're getting called names, you're being forced to PT for six hours a day, but that's only six months. And then you get out, you got to play the rookie game, you know, and we all know how to play that rookie game coming from the military and growing up in the ranks and being a junior guy. So it's a very easy transition. And then once you achieve any sort of seniority, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, like it was for us being team leaders or squad leaders or whatever it may have been. You kind of, you flow right into it. It's funny you said that playing the rookie game because it is, it's an act. Oh, anyone for a coffee? How about get you this? How about yeah. do this? You know, it's, it's bullshit, but that's the fucking civilian sectors. It, it does operate different uh, because we used to call those guys brown nosers. <laughs> oh, yep, exactly. That's what it feels like too, but you just got to play the part. Do it, yeah. Uh, so that that role then, I guess, um, jumping straight into the fire department was good for you because it had a similar work environment to the military. Yeah, and uh, I always go back to it's the same thing as being overseas. You know, you're waiting hours and hours for 30 seconds of action or 30 minutes of action. But it's like you hang out with your boys all day. You know, you're constantly kind of wargaming scenarios and coming up with what ifs or whatnot. And you... I mean, I don't know if you still work in the private security sector, but, you know, you got people that have your back and, and you have their back. You know, it's very similar, except this time you're not fighting people, you're just fighting fire, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's just changing who the enemy is is all it is. Do you do you enjoy your job now? I love it, man. I, it, it, there's not a, a day I go to work and it's no day is the same. You know, so it's, it's uh, that constantly varying environment and the... Um, you know, you go to calls that are, that are cut and dry, very basic responses, but then you go to calls that require this extremely complex um, answer to kind of solve the problem. And you just never know when that bell rings, what that problem is going to be. And it's, it's, uh, it keeps you on your toes. And 
you'll feel dumb every single day you work, but you learn something every single day. You work. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, I guess contrary to popular belief, most of the the, the call outs that you, that a fireman goes to probably aren't fires, are they? No, no, like I would say ninety percent are medical calls. <laughs> like, I mean, we have people call us because their head hurts or their tummy aches. You know, we had somebody call us the other day because they ate, ate a piece of pie and their throat was itchy. <laughs> so you get a lot of bullshit have you ever rescued a cat from a tree no but i rescued a cat from an engine compartment in a car <laughs> Damn, that's close enough uh well i'm glad that you fucking found something that you're passionate about i've seen on instagram as well that uh that, that sometimes you you do actually rock up the fires and, and get worked hard so uh what what was that uh that recent post that you you, you made about just give us a little idea of what the uh <laughs> situation was there uh, I think it was the picture with me and like my crew, the three other guys. Yeah. Um, that was actually my first, uh, house fire, my first, first in house fire that I got. Um, and you know, it's just like your, your first firefight, you go into it thinking, you know, what's going on. But as soon as you get punched in the mouth, that whole plan goes to shit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we went in, we experienced some issues. Um, I had the, the hose line, so I was trying to put the fire out, um, you know, I didn't get the knock that I expected on it. And uh, my buddy was like, hey, man, do this. It'll kind of kind of tame the conditions a bit. And we can go in interior and start fighting this thing. So, you know, I did what he said to do. And we got inside and we started beating the fire back. Um, it was a two-story house and the whole thing was almost almost on fire. I mean, the second floor was on fire, the first floor, the attic. Um, so it was cool, man. We got some experience and it, it was, like I said, I felt dumb. But I learned some things, and and uh, I'm a better a better man, a better firefighter because of it. So, yeah. what's it like walking into to a situation like that? Obviously, you've got your protective gear on, but fucking fire is hot regardless of what you're wearing. Um, is it is it is it tough to work in, or is it is it actually bearable? Um, it a a lot of the a lot of the heat is um, you know is. Uh, it's kind of mitigated by if you're standing up or if you're on a knee or if it's extremely, extremely hot, you gotta, you gotta prone out and get down. Um, but like on that one that we went to that picture you saw, I was on a knee in there and it wasn't too bad. Uh, you know, you can feel it on the, on your ears a little bit and it, it kind of burns and just lets you know it's up there. It needs to <laughs> put out. Um, but honestly, I think the most, the toughest thing to work through is a lack of visibility because I went in there and, and going back to those cornfields, you can't see what's five feet in front of you. Um, there was black smoke banked down to about knee level and I was on a knee and I couldn't see shit. I couldn't see the fire overhead of me. I couldn't see, you know, what part of the house we were in. Um, so just kind of working through that visibility aspect and relying on those different senses, um, you know, using that touch sense uh, and, and hearing is a big thing and just trying to, include all those things to figure out what's going on in the environment and, and suppress the issues that are arising. Um, that's definitely the toughest skill to learn, uh, cause we're so used to using our eyes for everything. Yeah. And, uh, in terms of communication, then it, I, I would imagine it's super loud in, inside somewhere like that. Um, if you can't, can't see shit, uh, and you can't hear shit, how, how are you communicating with each other? A lot of screaming, <laughs> a lot of screaming goes on. So you can't actually communicate with your voice. Yeah. It's yeah. Possible. I mean, if we need to, so a lot of times, like if me and you were in a building together, um, we would be close enough to where if you saw something I didn't, you kind of lean over and, and, you know, talk loud enough in my ear that I could hear you. Right, right. 
Um, we all have radios on. So if anything happens inside this adverse, we'll just communicate with the captain outside. Hey, man, we got this going on. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is just if you and I were in there, it's me and you going back and forth to kind of make sure that we're knocking down the fire wherever it is. Um, you know, you can we have like reflectors on our back so we can stay in, in visual contact with each other. Um, you know, you stay within arm's reach technically or typically. So, you know, if, if, if it's that bad inside where you can't see, I definitely don't want to be running away from you 15, 20 feet out there unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn, that's awesome. I, I, it was, uh, at one point it was, uh, a job that I, you know, I had actually applied for, but it was the same thing over here. It's super, super competitive and, uh, you know, I never actually got any, you never heard anything back. Um, but just probably wrapping up here now, mate. Um, have you got any sort of any advice for fellow Marines or, or anyone just leaving the military or the, or the Marine Corps in general? I mean, I think anybody, um, and it, it's probably something they've had beaten to their heads over and over again, but making sure that you have a concrete plan um, getting out. And uh, with that concrete plan is just staying in touch with the people that you served with. Um, because we didn't talk you know, much to it during the podcast, but I, I had a, a, you know, I, I had some TBIs and stuff like that while I was in. Um, and, and that when you put that with PTSD, it can just come compound those issues um, significantly. Um, so just making sure you have a concrete plan. Um, so your, your hands don't get idle and start doing the devil's business. Um, and then, you know, if that does happen to you, if you don't follow the path that you were supposed to just keep that uh, system of checks and balances in place and making sure, you know, you call somebody and say, Hey, you know, this isn't really working out. Maybe you could help me out or maybe we can find a different path together, but just have something in place to check yourself because we're so used to structure and we're so used to like the senior ranks being there to call us on our bullshit or call us on mistakes that when we get out, regardless if you're 22 years old or 35 years old, that lack of structure and having those checks and balances in place is going it, to, it, it's going to, um, you know, impact your life more significantly than you can actually, actually plan on it happening. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that, everything you just said there and uh, make sure you have some savings. <laughs> you yeah. need money for when you get out. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, all right, Jay, we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but uh, let me just say once again, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to meet you first of all. Um, but also thank you very much for taking the time out of your, your day to, to, sit down and knock us out it's been an absolute pleasure like i said and uh, I'm, I'm sure the guys are going to enjoy it yeah brother i appreciate you having me on man it was great meeting you too awesome all right uh well where can people find you uh if on on uh social media or whatever if they want to follow you um yeah i got my instagram it's uh little burn 87 um l-t-t-l-e-b-r-d-8-7 and then just my facebook is jamra i don't really not too much action on there but um, that's if they ever want to come by and say hey or they need somebody to talk to feel free yeah. awesome well i'll stick the links and stuff down below anyway so people can you know get it uh easily accessible uh but as as jay just said there as well if, if anyone has got any issues going on or whatever feel free to reach out to me as well uh via the instagram or or email uh you can find the email on the uh on the on the podcast and sites so or youtube whatever um but Again, Jay, thank you very much, mate, and, and have a, a good rest of your day. Absolutely, brother. Stay safe. Thank you for sticking around to the end of the show. It means that you invested a significant amount of your time, and for that, I appreciate you. 
I need you to do me a favour and make sure that you're following along on all the platforms. Wherever you consume the podcast, make sure that you're either a subscriber or following on those platforms. New episodes are live every Sunday at 2pm UK time and they're available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google as well as a few of the other smaller platforms. Your support means a great deal to me so let me know what you think of the show by leaving a review and if you have any suggestions or just want to show your support, uh, leave a comment. Once again, thanks for tuning in and come back next week for some more of the world's only infantry specific podcast.